Well, before I get started, I, a couple of things I want to say. First of all, I thought for sure that Paul was going to use these as some sort of object lesson. <laughs> but apparently not. Uh, but also, at the top of your outlines, uh, there's a typo that I didn't catch till after they were printed. Uh, should say Galatians 3, 23 through 29. So make sure you get to Galatians 3. Otherwise, everything I say up here will probably be really confusing uh, in our sermon this morning. So it's Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. So let's uh, just uh, bow before the Lord in prayer before we get started here. Father, uh, your word is such a, a treasure, uh, so rich and full of, of truth and meaning, and, and uh, no matter how much we've studied it, how much we've sought to see it uh, work in our hearts and lives, we're still just beginning, and, and we're thankful for that, that we can <clears throat> come back to its, its riches time after time, and and each time is better than the last. And, and I pray that in, in our time together in the book of Galatians, that would prove true. Uh, that because your spirit is uh, taking hold of us and helping us to see things more clearly, uh, 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 put them together with other scripture more in, in a fuller way, and especially to, to show us how it applies uh, in each of our own hearts and lives. Each of us are are such different people and, and in such different places in our lives and, and going through different things that uh, what, we, what we hear from your word this morning is going to impact us in different ways, is going to call us maybe to different specific actions. And so I pray that uh, you would do that, that uh, we would not be indifferent or think, oh, I've heard this before or... Uh, any of those other things that might uh, keep us from what, what it is you want to do, but you would uh, take us and, and use this time for your honor and glory and, and for our good. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So when you go to your silverware drawer, do you have a knife that doesn't look quite like the other ones? Not that it's a different pattern, but something's happened to it. Um, maybe it got used as a screwdriver or uh, a lever of some sort. You know, sometimes when, you, know, you might wonder who did that. <clears throat> maybe you know. Maybe you know the person in your, in your household who's likely to have taken that knife and, and used it for one of those other purposes. But sometimes we get caught when we try to use a tool for purposes it wasn't intended for, right? And... Uh, you know, if you're the kid in the family that decided to, to tighten a screw and, you know, messed up the end of the knife or, or bent the prong on the fork, you're like, oh, man, I thought I could do this and nobody would ever know. But it comes around, you find out, no, you get caught when you use a tool sometimes in a way that it shouldn't be used. And that's really what Paul's been doing here in Galatians chapter 3. Uh, he's caught people telling others to use the law of Moses, the law that God gave to the Jewish people for something it was never intended to be used for. They've told these new believers in the, in the area of Galatia, in these new churches, that, you know, believing in Jesus is fine, but first you have to be 
circumcised like the Old Testament law tells you men. First, you have to obey all these, these rules or, or a select set of rules from, from the law of Moses. Then you can believe in Jesus and be saved. Well, they've taken a tool that God intended for people's good and turned it into something that actually is bad for them, that is doing harm to them. And we saw last week that uh, one of the things that, that God did give the law for, because you stop and say, well, salvation, in other words, being made righteous before God, cannot come by keeping the law. The law was not given to you so that you could make yourself or prove yourself righteous. But we've seen multiple times in Galatians that the law points out that you are a sinner. The law brings a curse because you find out, I can't keep it. And even the Old Testament, when it was given, said, a curse is on everyone who does not keep all of the commandments that are given here. And so last, last week, as Paul addressed a, a question that he thought is going to come up in people's minds in, in Galatians 3, verse 19, and that question is, why the law then? If it can't get you into heaven, if it can't make you right with God, if it can't give you salvation, why did God bother giving it to us? And he gave us part of the answer in the section we looked at last week when he showed that the law was there to shut us up all up in sin. In other words, to show us what our condition is. It's as though it kind of locked us away in, in the box that says, these are the ones who are condemned for their sin. In other words, it's much like the diagnostic tools that the doctors use, right? MRIs and CAT scans, they can go in and they can look inside your body, and if you've got cancer, they say, oh, we can see growth here and here, and exactly kind of the, the ways are, are pretty close as to what that growth is doing and how it's threatening your health. And that's a, a wonderful thing to have, right? To know, here's what the problem is, and where it is, and where we have to go to fix it. But if a person had one of those scans done and said, well, now we'll fix that, that, that cancer in me, I'll go back and get another scan, and it'll show that I'm okay. Going to be effective? No. No, because a scan was never made to cure cancer. Scan was never made to fix the problem, but simply to reveal it. And in the section we looked at last week, it showed that's what the law is for. It kind of puts us all in that box of diagnosed as sinners with a terminal prognosis. Condemned because of their sin. Paul's going to tell us a little bit more, though, about why the law then. Shows us what our problem is, the fact that we need a Savior. And then he continues in verse 23. So if you follow along with me in Galatians chapter 3, verse 23, down through the end of the chapter. It says, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us 
to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into who were, who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. And so as he continues on, he says, let me show you another aspect to God's law and how he uses it in this plan of salvation. Or how he has, you could say, used it in his plan of salvation. Probably be a more accurate way to, to say that. As we look at verses, first, verses 23 through 25, one of the things that you, you might notice is through verses 23 through 25, Paul uses plural pronouns. So he says, we and our, and us. When he gets then to uh, the next section of 26 and following, he starts saying, you, in the plural. Okay, you, you all, you all, you all. So, so keep that in mind, because here first, I believe what Paul's doing when he says, we, and us, and our, is he's talking about the Jewish people. Because the Mosaic law wasn't just thrown out there for the whole world. It was given specifically to Moses for the descendants of Jacob or Israel. And so the question being, why the law then? He's going to answer, well, this is one of the things that God intended the law for us, the Jewish people to whom the law was given. This is why we had this gift from God. And, and, and I want to just actually back up into verse 22 and remind you again in verse 22, the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. So we're continuing on from that point there, reminding us that the law could never give life or righteousness to anyone. It could only shut you up under condemnation. It was designed to point out our sin and the failure of all human beings to be righteous and therefore under a curse, not measuring up to God's righteousness. Again, it's the diagnostic tool, the scan that shows the condition of a sinner is terminal. This is the point, really, that you have to come to in order to realize that you need to put your faith in Christ. It's a great gift to realize you're at that place. If you don't realize that you are headed for death, you don't realize that you're headed for eternal condemnation, you're not going to be looking for someone who can actually give you the cure. And of course, Jesus coming, dying in our place on the cross, is the, is the cure that works 100% of the time when people put their faith in him. But there was that bigger picture that was going on as well. As he continues on in verse 23, he says, before faith came, in other words, before the object of our faith, the seed we've been talking about, Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, before he came, 
and, and we could actually see where our faith had to be directed, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith that was later to be revealed. So he says, we the Jewish people were put under the rule of the Mosaic law. We were, he said, kept in custody. So as far, as far as God's unfolding plan, in order to bring the Messiah and to have the Jewish people ready for his arrival, there's a sense in which the law put them under protective custody. It put them in a place where God was caring for them, directing their hearts in a special way so that when the, when the Messiah came, they had the opportunity to recognize that. God had set aside the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob as the path through which the Messiah would come, the promised seed. And that's why Paul says we, we were kept or guarded by the law. We were set, set aside, we were prepped for the promised one's coming with the law. In other words, their whole life, everything about a Jewish person's life, there were things that the law talked about. How you eat, how you dress, how you farm, how you marry, how you interact, all the, all the different aspects of your life, and especially how you worship, pointed in the worship to the need for someone to give their life, right? It was all those animals that had to die when you sinned. Your sin was placed on those animals. The animal died. That's how your sin was set aside temporarily. But it pointed ahead to the fact that you needed someone to die in your place like that animal did. The law was bringing the, us, us he's, Paul speaking of the Jewish people, to a point of understanding the one who was going to come and to anticipate him as well. So bringing the Jewish people should have been in eager anticipation of that one. And Paul describes here in verse 24 that the law was our tutor. That's an interesting word that it actually comes off from a Greek word that's kind of hard, hard to translate directly into English. Because we think of tutor, we just think of someone who teaches a child their subject matter. Um, your translation might translate that word guardian. Uh, the King James says our schoolmaster. But, but it's not really, it doesn't really mean a teacher of information. Um, in Greek and Roman culture, families of wealth would put a trusted student, or servant, I mean, a trusted servant over their young sons with a great degree of latitude in disciplining them and impacting their lives to make sure that these young boys did all the things that would make them into great men. And so this person could be very strict and very demanding, making sure that these young men did get to their teachers who would teach them the content that they were to learn. But they also had the latitude to make sure that they had good manners make sure that they did the things that they ought to do, behaved the way they ought to behave. And even though this person was a servant of the family, and maybe in some cases actually a slave of this boy's father, 
he had this power over this young, young man in order to get him to a particular point. And I've got the feeling that these young, young boys and young men probably often thought of these tutors or, or whatever you want to call them as like drill sergeants, really, more than teachers. It was their job to make sure they did the right things in order to turn out to be the kind of young men that their family wanted them to be. But the position was temporary. The goal was to bring them through childhood and into and up to the point of adulthood. And while the plan of God was coming to its fullness or its maturity, the people that he was using to bring that one were held in that readiness by the law, which treated them like this tutor, like this man who could discipline them as a people as a whole, right? To make sure that they were ready when the time was right for the promised Messiah to come. So they were prepared for the moment when the conditions were perfectly mature for the Messiah. As Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 puts it, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. That's what the law was for, for the Jewish people, was to make them ready for that moment when God's plan had matured to the point when Messiah would come. So just like those young men who reached a point when it's like, okay, you're no longer under your tutor. And they went, yay, right? Freedom. I'm out from under the taskmaster, right? Out from under the drill sergeant. Now I'm an adult. Now I am free to go and do as I choose. In the same way, the Jewish people should have been looking and saying, I've been brought to the point of Messiah being here. Now I can go into the freedom of knowing my sins are forgiven because of what he has done. Into the freedom of living for him, having become a fully mature son with the rights and privileges of sonhood. That was why God gave them that law, to keep them in check morally, to give them external pressure to not be like the nations around them, to give them a, a unique identity so that they as a people were ready for this promised Messiah who would be the lamb, who would give himself for them, but it would also be the king that they were promised as well. <clears throat> and so, this, the law was a great benefit for them. Think about the law. I don't know about you, but as I grew up in a, in a Christian home, basically. Uh, my dad was saved when I was really young. I grew up thinking, oh yeah, grace is good. Law is not so good. Law is bad. Well, there actually was a great benefit to the Jewish people of having the law. Like the, the young man with a tutor, not everyone had a tutor. And though they may have, have chafed under it at times, there, the, this whole, whole uh, practice was there for a reason. The parents saw a benefit of somebody riding herd on their sons 
in such a way that when they grew up, they really had learned what they needed to learn. They really had done the things that were necessary to make them into great young men. The poorer families, the poorer boys, they didn't have a tutor. And so it was up to them to simply have self-discipline themselves, maybe to get some lucky breaks and end up learning some of the things they needed to learn. <clears throat> Whereas these, these wealthy young men had this person who kept them going in the right direction all along. Probably didn't like it a lot of the time. But it was a, it was a benefit for them. And in the same way, the Jews had a special preparation for the gospel message and the reception of salvation through believing in Jesus. And that's one of the reasons that when Paul started taking the good news to areas like Galatia, do you remember where he went first? He went to the Jewish synagogue, to the people who had been living under the law, to the people who already had revelation from God, what we call the Old Testament. Because they were prepped and ready to hear about someone who will save us from our overwhelming sin. They were prepped and ready to expect a Messiah to come. They were prepped and ready for someone to come and to bear their sin for them, like Isaiah 53 talks about. And so there's a great benefit. In fact, Paul talks about that in his letters. If you turn with other letters, turn with me to, to Romans chapter 3. And if you're familiar with Romans, you know that the first two chapters, Paul takes the time to show that everyone, whether they're Jewish or not, that is, therefore Gentile, all men are condemned before God. And he shows how, how Jews are all, have all broken God's law. And it's, it's witness against them that they have done that. But then he also shows that the Gentiles have a witness within them of what's right and wrong. We, as God's creatures, have within us an, an innate understanding of right and wrong. It's not perfect, but within ourselves, we feel guilty when we've sinned. And when we do the right thing, we feel good about it. And we look out in creation and we say, wow, look at what an amazing place we live. Look at the world around us. Look at our bodies and how intricately designed they are. Look at the glory of the heavens. And all of that, we have a witness that there is a God and that we are responsible to him. And so Paul says, all people, Jew or Gentile, were all condemned under sin. And so the question then comes up in, in Romans chapter 3, verse 1, then what advantage has the, Jew, has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? So why all this law stuff? Why this nation God set aside for himself? And Paul answers that in verse 2. He says, great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. In essence, Paul says, it's a huge advantage the Jewish people have because they have the very words of God given to them, recorded, and even explained so that they can understand how God designed things. 
what God's plan is for redeeming mankind, how God was going to send a Messiah. In other words, they've got God's very words. Huge advantage if it's used to prepare them for the coming Savior. Uh, In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he kind of comes at it from the opposite point of view. Um, what, What are Gentiles missing out on? Because they aren't Jews. So you go to Ephesians chapter, chapter 2, verse 12. <clears throat> a little back up to verse 11 to get the start of the sentence. He says, Therefore remember that you, that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So here's the other side. What's your disadvantage? Not being Jewish. It's like, well, much in every respect, you could say. Right? We weren't connected to the message. We weren't connected to the promises. We weren't connected to the hope that God said he was sending. Jewish people had all of those things in the word and in the experience they had as a nation together. And God had been preparing the Jewish nation for the coming of Messiah. He would be the savior of the world. Jewish people in a special way were prepared. And that was a great thing that that the law did for the Jewish people. They had a familiarity. They had a connection with God. They had promises from Him. If they they believed, they could count on the fact that those, in fact, were their promises. And so the point of the law, then, was to guide them, to guard them, to bring them to a point when then they could be released to faith, released to believing in the Messiah who was going to come. And that's really what the end of verse 24 and into verse 25 is all about. So that you, or that we, speaking of the Jewish people, that we may be justified by faith. Like Abraham, we could believe God and it would be reckoned to us as righteousness. As Abraham's children, we could have the same kind of salvation that Abraham had before the law ever came. And so verse 24 says, therefore, or I'm sorry, verse 25 and 26, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Huge statement for a Jew to make, especially somebody who'd been a Pharisee, right? No longer under the law. How how can this be? We're, we're, We're the Jewish people. That's what defines us, isn't it? Paul's saying, no. Now, what defines us is the end the law was pointing us to. The greatest Jew of all, the Messiah, Jesus, the Savior. Now, we're released to trust him and say, okay, Jesus, you're now the one who directs us. It's you who sends us where we should go. And then verse 26, he switches, right? It's been we, we, us, our. What was God doing with the law? Well, for the Jewish people, here was the point. 
was getting us ready for Messiah. But then verse 20, 26 says, For you, or you all, it's a plural you, are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So having talked about us, or we Jews, it says, you Galatian believers, all you who have put your faith in Jesus, you are sons of God. Regardless of whether you were under the law and prepared for it, and in that preparation then turned and believed in the, the Messiah who came, or you were a Gentile who had a hard time understanding who the God of the Jewish scriptures was. When you learned and you put your faith in him, guess what? You too became a son of God. And that, that word son has the idea of someone who is matured, right? To the point of being an heir. Hence the, the, the title at the top of your outline. You're all sons in the sense of being responsible heirs of the king. The Gentiles didn't have to become Jews first. Just like we saw in that line that started back in Genesis 15, right? When God promised that the, the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, pointing ahead to Jesus. That line has always been direct. You put your faith in the one who's going to crush the serpent's head. You put your faith in the one who's going to be the seed of Abraham, who's going to bless all the nations. You put your faith in the one who's going to be the seed or the descendant of David, who is going to be the Messiah, the King of Israel. The line's always direct by faith to Jesus. So the Gentiles didn't have to enter into being under the law. All human sinners come by means of entrusting themselves to the Savior. The line to faith in him has always been direct on from Genesis chapter 3. And then he explains how it all works. Verse 27. For all of you, all you Gentiles, all you who have believed, all you, no matter what your background, all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. He uses two different word pictures to help us understand this idea. Baptized into Christ. He's talking about what actually happens when you believe. But it's pictured in the act of water baptism. And the symbolism of water baptism is, is that you get put under the water, right? You're immersed in the water. Which shows that when you believe, you are immersed in Christ. You are totally in Him. In His death is what symbolized going under the water. And since you are immersed in his death, his death becomes the death that you deserved. You are raised up out of the water, symbolic of his resurrection into new life that never ends. That's you. You have become totally united with him when you believed in his death, burial, resurrection to new life into eternity. 
Every person, Jew or Gentile, is made new and becomes a son of God at the moment they begin believing in Jesus. But then he also says, you who have been baptized into Christ have been clothed with him. This means that he or she takes on a whole new identity. To clothe yourself with Christ means to put him on as your identity. This is who I am. All that you are, or known to be, comes from that relationship now. All the benefits, rights, and privileges of being a son are shared with you by Jesus, the Son, as he joins you to himself. So because, he says, you've been united with Christ, now all of his, the, the things that are his, now they're yours. You've put him on as your identity. One of the interesting things that the Romans did is when a young man reached that age of adulthood, they would have a special ceremony, and he would put off the clothing of childhood and would begin wearing a toga. It demonstrated that he was an adult son. In the same way, Paul says, put on Christ. He is now your identity. You are now his adult son, you could say with all of the rights, privileges, and benefits that come with that. You're not under a tutor. He says you all, whether Jew or Gentile, you are all in this position, in this place of privilege. So you don't have to go back and go through the route of the law. You went directly to the one who grants it in the first place. And that's why verse 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So he starts with what he's been talking about all along, right? The lie that the Gentiles had to first become children of Abraham by being circumcised. It's like, no. That makes no difference. You put your faith in Christ and you are a son of God. You are one with his son, Jesus. The process is exactly the opposite. You jump right past all that the Jews did. You go straight to the Messiah. And it's not that there are Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. It's not that there are Jewish sons and Gentile sons. No, you are all just sons of God. God accepts those who believe in Jesus regardless of their genealogy. You don't have to have genes that tie you back to Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. Your sonship comes through a direct relationship with Jesus, God's son. But all the other distinctions that we might think of are also subordinate to that truth to that sonship in Christ. And so so he lists them. He says, not slave or free man. So in the church, all come together as brothers, as co-heirs, as equals in the church. Doesn't matter if you own slaves or you are the slave that is owned. Doesn't matter your employment status. Doesn't matter where you are on the, the socioeconomic ladder, right? doesn't matter how important people in the community think you are. If you come to Christ and trust yourself to him, you are a son of God. 
But he, he goes even further. He says, there is neither male nor female. Now, he doesn't mean there aren't distinctions. Obviously, men and women are different. But he's saying men and women come to faith in Christ in exactly the same way. And by the way, he said, you are all sons. Doesn't mean that there is no distinction between men and women. God created them male and female, Genesis tells us. What he's saying is, you come and you end up with the exact same rights and privileges and benefits of having entrusted yourself to Jesus and being united with him. In all of the societies of that day, men and women had different benefits. They inherited differently. Paul says, if you have believed in Christ, you are a son of God. You have all of the rights and privileges of sonship, whether you're a man or a woman, a boy or a girl. Those things make no difference in your standing before God. You become righteous regardless of that. For you are all, what does it say, one in Christ Jesus, equally blessed, equally benefiting from the death of Christ, equally overflowing with blessing. What you, how you live your life out day to day might look very different. Your roles in your family, your roles in society, the way things play out for you in, the, in the, your circumstances might look very different. But you are all one in Christ. You all have the exact same righteousness credited to you if you've believed in Christ. You all have the same future with Christ forever. You all have eternal life. It says, all those other distinctions are of no consequence when it comes to that. Then he goes on to verse 29. He says something that's even more radical in a sense. He says, and if you belong to Christ, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's descendants or Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. <clears throat> and that verb, you are Abraham's descendants, present tense. It's an ongoing thing, goes on. You are the seed of Abraham. You keep on as the seed of Abraham. So that truth is true now and is ongoing because you have been joined together with Jesus who is the seed. Remember, we worked through all that about the seed, the singular seed that was coming. <clears throat> if you are his, if you are united with him and one in him, then you share in all of his blessings. You even share, it says here, in his inheritance. Everyone who believes joins in. Now that doesn't displace the promises to the collective seed or descendants of Abraham. If you remember when we looked in Genesis 22, God promised them land to the seed. He promised them a nation. He promised them a kingdom down the, down the road that the, all those descendants of Abraham. But he also then made a specific promise to the seed singular 
that he would rule over the gates of his enemies, right? And that he would bless all of the nations. When we are joined with Christ, we now join in all, the, all that's in that promise. That becomes ours because we are one with him. In fact, turn with me, if you would, now to Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. Romans 8, 14 through 17. <clears throat> Where it says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Notice it didn't say all who are Jewish, or all who are Gentile, or all who are slave, or all, no, just all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Isn't that amazing? That He would join us to Himself in such a way that, that He shares his inheritance as the Son with us? And what is an inheritance? Well, it's everything, right? All things are put in subjection under his feet. All things are under his authority. And he shares that with us. It even says there, so that we may be what, glorified with him? We who are sinners, we who deserved condemnation, we who deserved shame, he says, I will share my glory with you because you are mine. I, I don't quite know how to explain that entirely. But I know it's amazing that he would actually share the glow of his beauty and everything else with us. So as we come to the end of this chapter, I, I urge you don't fall into the lie that being a Christian or a follower of Jesus is, is about keeping a list of do's and don'ts. It is not a life of, here's all the things you do, and here's all the things you don't, and you better line up and, and make God happy. That's not what it's talking about. It's not what the life of following Christ is about. This life is about realizing that we can't accomplish our own righteousness on our own. It is about trusting Jesus because he paid for our sins, to forgive our sins and make us into a new person joined together with him. Life as a Christian is about being and living. We're called to recognize what we have come to be. We have put on Christ. We are new creations. We are in him. We are sons of of God. And now he says, now live in a way that matches up with what you have become. Well, yeah, you can look back at the law, get some good examples about what righteousness looks like, but it's more about saying, I can look at Jesus and see what he's like. And I am in him. 
and I am his, and he is mine. I have a new condition. I have a new identity. I want to live in the reality of that new identity. What a glorious gift, right? What a glorious gift, and what amazing freedom that gives us to go anywhere in life, to do anything as we pursue Him and knowing Him. Let's pray. Father, You are amazing, and I, I know I haven't had words enough or properly said or arranged or emphasized enough to bring out all the glory that's there. And yet your spirit can help us to grasp and understand that better and more fully. And, and so I do pray you would keep us on that, that path of, of not only learning it because you are teaching it, but having a desire to know more fully what it is we have become in Christ. Uh, that you bring us back again and again to your word to, to, to more fully understand that and move into it and, and move into what is ours not just now, but forever, even after this life is over. Uh, you have uh, incredible plans for us, and so please help us not get bogged down in the tools of the past, but that we would move into the freedom of living in Christ. We ask this for your glory and in his name. Amen.